Blog Talk Radio. March 14th, 2018 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. And here we discuss news, politics, and culture from an individualist perspective. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and I'm having some technical difficulties getting the live stream going on YouTube. So I'm asking those of you who are listening to me live at Blog Talk Radio to hang with me for a second because I think I know what I need to do. Let me... Grab something and then sorry guys. I'm going through some settings. Uh, let's see. Let's see if I can get my settings. Okay, I'm gonna stop the live stream. I'm gonna go into my my Zoom settings. Let's see. Nope, not that. Hmm. Okay. I need to do something with my Zoom meeting settings, guys. I'm sorry about this. Let me get this going. Let's see. Live on custom streaming. It doesn't seem like it's going to be working here. Ding, get the page. And it's officially not streaming to YouTube. Sorry about this. Let me get over to my Zoom account and see what's going on. Okay, my meeting's on Zoom. And let's see, this one, okay, live streaming, show, okay, I want to edit, put a new stream key in here, save, sure, okay, let me try this again, people. Let me see if I can get this going. Okay, stop that. Try again. Okay, now we're going to try and see if this works for YouTube.
Okay, I don't know. It should work. I just put a new stream key in. And I am not seeing anything over on my YouTube channel. Mm -mm -mm. Hmm. Okay, this is terrible. I don't know what to do with you guys. Let's see, what can I do? I can invite you guys. Copy invitation. No. Can't do that. Copy URL. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and put out on my Facebook the Don't Let It Go On Her page an invite to join in the Zoom meeting, I guess, if you want. This is terrible that I can't get this to stream live. I have a great idea for the show today. You guys, I'm just I'm recording the video. I'm just going to go ahead and record the video. I'll put the video up later. I don't know. You guys can't see me live. It's so frustrating. I just don't want to think about this as opposed to the content. I have a nice show, and I want to just get on it. So let me – I'm putting a quick link over on my Don't Let It Go On Heard page on Facebook to invite people to join if they want to join the video. Um, Otherwise, I don't know what to do. So join me if you can. I'll be posting a video later. I've got it recording on Zoom, and I don't want to spend any more time on that. I've got people over joining me at Blog Talk Radio. I guess, uh, yeah, and still Zoom is not going to be able to hear you guys. You're going to have to participate there in the chat uh, with me if you want over at Blog Talk Radio or at the Zoom meeting. You can participate in the chat as well. We'll see if I have people joining me over at Zoom. And if we do have people joining me over here at Zoom, then I'll open the chat up for that, see what happens. People can join me. Okay. I want to get onto the show. Got to get on the substance of this. The show for today is called The Value of the Rule of Law. And if you go over to my blog at don'tletitgo.com, you will be able to see some program notes uh, just Jean is over here in the chat room. Do you still live stream on Facebook or only on YouTube now? I'm not even live streaming on YouTube today, Jean, uh, and Facebook is yet another thing to figure out. I thought I had this whole streaming service up. It says I'm live on a custom streaming service right now. That's what Zoom is telling me. But when I go over to my YouTube channel, I'm not seeing anything. And, yeah, I see some people are subscribing and everything, and yet I'm not seeing anything. I should be live on YouTube at this second, and it's just not working. Um, the only thing I could think of is, as far as Zoom goes, I'm going to go ahead and end the meeting, and then I'm going to start over, actually. Let me do that. Let's just start a new Zoom meeting with video. And join conference by computer. And this is my last shot. I've got the audio on. And I've got that. Record to the cloud. Okay, I'm starting a new Zoom meeting. And I'm going to see if I can stream this appropriately over. Okay, here we go. So the streaming key 
okay, I need a few things. So let me grab it. I'm going to get this to work, guys. I am so sorry, you blog talk people. What I'm going to have to do with my podcast is I'm going to have to, um, yeah, let me get this. What I'm going to have to do with the podcast is I'm going to have to edit it because I don't want people to have to listen to all this. Okay, live streaming page URL. I am almost there. I think, I think, I think. Okay, here we go. Back to Zoom. Here it is. Okay. Here we go. I think it's going to live stream now. I think it is. I think it is. Go back to my channel home. And it sometimes takes a few seconds. I should be streaming live. And is it not working still? I know there's quite a delay, so maybe I need to be patient. Anyway, I'm doing everything I can to get up on YouTube right now. And I'm also recording on Zoom. So, hello everybody. I've restarted this. This show is today titled The Value of the Rule of Law, and I have to get into the substance. I can't think about the tech anymore. I'm hoping I've got us going up there on YouTube and that people can participate, but I'm still not seeing it there. So I'll put this. Yeah, the the Blog Talk audio is good, and uh, Blog Talk audio is, is always nice, and I'll just keep going on with this right now. And later, you can watch me fumble on video. So... Uh, In terms of the inspiration for today's show, the value of the rule of law, why in the world do I want to talk about this? You know, it's good to revisit things every so often as something in the news sparks it. There are a couple immigration-related stories that first got me thinking about this. And one of them was this horrible story of a woman who was separated from her daughter by the immigration authorities. And... um, something like seven months or something. And the pretext for doing this was that the daughter was maybe a victim of trafficking of some kind, but they didn't bother to even do the blood test to determine paternity with this mother. And they separated the two for something like crazy, seven months or whatever. And it was in accordance with an announcement that the Trump administration had made that they actually wanted to do this, that they wanted to put people on notice that if they tried to come here illegally, that they were going to be separating the parents from their children and so deter people from coming here illegally. That was the idea. Uh, And there's been a lawsuit and there's going to be other people that are also going to – uh, Jay, Jay in the chat room over here saying I don't see a Zoom invite post anywhere. I restarted a different Zoom meeting anyway, so whatever you would find is not good. There's not going to be a way uh, to see me live, unfortunately, today, uh, as far as I know. And I'll refresh it, YouTube one more time to see if I'm up there. I should have been up there. I started it, and it still did not work. So I'm not sure why Restream was not working for me exactly. Um, anyway, I can't. I can't keep being distracted by it. Okay, so to go back to the story, um, the woman, she is separated from her daughter. They're not even blood testing to see if she's the parent and everything, and it's all to deter so-called illegal 
immigration. And of course, I think this is horrific. Uh, I think that people who are peaceful, who just want to come here to find a better life, these two were seeking asylum because of they were fleeing violence in the Congo, uh, you know, a mother and daughter completely worthy to, to come in here. Not that I want to pay for them, but if there's a charitable organization that wants to take them on, or if there's somebody else who's going to take responsibility for them, why not let them in and try to find a good life here in the United States? So there was that story. Uh, another story is that somebody who worked high up in the administration for ICE quit because he was um, very frustrated with the fact that they were not telling the truth about the crackdown that happened in California. And uh, let me go ahead and find the program notes on that, because I, I do have the program notes over at my blog. I refer you to my blog at don'tletitgo.com. And the article that I have, thanks to Quint Cordaire, headline is this, San Francisco's ICE spokesman quits, disputes agencies claim that 800 eluded arrest. And of course, this is not the first time that somebody has left the employment one way or another of Trump administration or some agency under Trump because of a problem with untruths by the agency or the administration. As I understand it, there's this whole thing about the timeline of Tillerson's firing yesterday, and there's some undersecretary under Tillerson that was going out and saying hey, you know, basically Trump fired this guy on Twitter and then wouldn't talk to him and stuff. And when he was telling the truth about how this firing of Tillerson was actually handled, he himself was also fired. Uh, but here, this guy, he, he decided he'd go ahead and quit. And it's because the agency had been making a claim that 800 illegal immigrants had eluded arrest because of a state of California official, or actually the mayor, the Oakland mayor, had given a warning to the public about this impending crackdown. Um, and for me, I would actually be sympathetic to giving a warning about this impending crackdown. And I would certainly be angry about our federal government overemphasizing or exaggerating the number of people who supposedly eluded arrest because of this, et cetera. So these are two stories related to immigration that have, you know, sort of inspired me to look at the value of the rule of law. Why? Because if you go out on social media, people say, oh, gosh, you know, aren't you in favor of the rule of law? And if you're in favor of the rule of law, certainly you are in favor of supporting the government when it chooses to enforce our immigration law. You know, even if you disagree with our immigration law, then what is the venue? The venue is that you should try to propose a, you know, a different immigration law. And so all they're doing is they're enforcing the existing law and you should be in favor of that, Amy. Shouldn't you be in favor of that? You know, why, why are you going to be so upset if the, Trump administration is using as a deterrent a policy to separate kids from their parents, right? Um, that's a deterrent to illegal immigration. And so insofar as we have policies of illegal immigration, don't you want to deter this? Uh, so that's the idea with it, um, that, you know, the, the original inspiration. But then I saw a connection with this, of course, yesterday. And again, we'll go back to the Tillerson firing because 
now that Tillerson has been fired as Secretary of State, we are going to have Mike Pompeo from the CIA moved over to be Secretary of State. And I've got, again, in the program notes at don'tletitgo.com, a link. And the link um, is from a Heretz story. I just went, you know, right afterwards, because I remember about Pompeo. One thing that I remember because of my value orientation around Edward Snowden is that Pompeo is in favor of um, trying Snowden for treason and executing him. He wants him dead. He wants Snowden dead for the revelations that he made. And, you know, obviously for me, when you say, okay, well, Amy, why aren't you in favor of Trump enforcing the immigration law and the different measures that are taken to do this? Amy, why aren't you in favor of prosecuting Snowden? Because, I mean, after all, Snowden broke the law. He broke certain agreements that he made to protect and uphold the Constitution, say, and the laws of the United States when he was, um, you know, when, when sorry, I'm, I just got distracted by something at Blog Talk now. I, I don't know. I feel like I should just record a podcast and not <laughs> deal with any tech at all. That's how I'm starting to feel today. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, you ask Amy, so, Amy, you know, why, why are you in favor of, Snowden and what he did and his revelations and don't you think we should prosecute him and try him for treason and execute him you know execute him and everything else uh, what's the big deal aren't you an advocate for rule of law are you just one of these unprincipled pragmatist people I mean you accuse Trump of being an unprincipled pragmatist but what about these cases so that's the idea behind the show today is discussing the value of the rule of law an understanding of what makes the rule of law value in the first place. And then we're going to see, am I some pragmatist or am I applying principles within a context? And what is it exactly that I'm advocating for with respect to the immigration case and also with respect to the, um, you know, the issue with, with Snowden and everything else, what should be done about them? The, reference that I have for you in terms of discussing the value, the nature of the rule of law and the value of the rule of law is this book by Tara Smith. It's called Judicial Review and Objective Legal System. So I would recommend that you grab that. And I've got a link to it again at my blog at don'tletitgo.com. It's a handy dandy Amazon link. Yes, a small fraction of what you spend will actually go to me to support my show if you use that link, but your price will be the same. It's not like you get any increase in price or anything. You help me with no extra cost to you. You also help Tara sell her book with no extra cost to you. It's the same price if you buy it through my link and, or through anything else. And she has a chapter in this book called The Moral Imperative of the Rule of Law, and there's a couple different sections. I mean, it's a longer chapter, and there's no way I'm going to do it justice today. But, you know, she talks about, first of all, what is the rule of law commonly understood to consist of? And the way that I was introduced to this material is when I studied and also taught philosophy of law, there's a philosopher of law by the name of Lon Fuller. And I believe he was at Harvard. And he has a very famous essay it's uh, eight ways to fail to make law. And it's this parable 
about a king, a very well-meaning king who wanted to institute legal reforms, but he kept failing to make law in various ways because he did not do all of the things that you need to do in order to adhere to the ideal of rule of law. And Tara talks about a number of the characteristics, a number of the requirements for something to you know, live up to the ideals of the rule of law, formal conditions. So, for instance, on page 71 of her book, she talks about that the laws have to be written and clearly formulated. They have to be broad in scope because they're going to govern a wide variety of individual situations. You're not going to make a law to apply to one single person, one single situation. They have to be made publicly known in advance of the application, not retroactive. Uh, they need to be settled and stable. And, you know, not in the sense that you can never change the law, right? You should, can sometimes properly change the law, but that they can't be changed frequently, erratically, without any sort of reasonable notice. You know, things like, for instance, signing an order, and then in two weeks there's going to be new tariffs on steel and aluminum, I would say that that's probably not reasonable notice. That's not very settled and stable law, particularly of something so significant that it's going to increase prices for so many things very quickly. Uh, mutually consistent. The law should be mutually consistent. You shouldn't be asked to do A by one law and non-A by another law. They may not impose conflicting demands. That's another requirement of the rule of law. The application of the rules should be consistent. And uh, also the law's authority should be supreme, not just in name, but in the actual operation of the legal system. So, for example, if we say that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, we should treat it that way consistently all the time. So that gives you an idea of what characteristics the rule of law is commonly thought of to have. And I think Tara basically agrees with those, but then she has sections talking about, you know, what is the basic appeal of it? You know, that you have a system of rules and all the things that that gives you uh, the objectivity of it, that they're consistent, knowable, fair, that it's governed by reason as opposed to, you know, the rule of law versus the rule of men, the rule of men meaning some sort of arbitrary whim. These are all commonly understood and appreciated benefits of the rule of law. But the point of Tara's chapter here, and one of the things that she talks about in her book, is that the value of any of this depends on the underlying substance of the law. So the rule of law, all those characteristics that I told you about, you know, that's published and that it's consistent and understandable and all the different things, you know, as I said, Lon Fuller has eight different criteria for something to amount to law properly. And there's eight ways to fail to make law, as he said about it. And really funny, it's a cute story about the king. You know, he's just, he's bumbling, he's well-meaning, but he just isn't making the law properly. Um, so, uh, you know, those, those are all what we would call formal requirements of law, though. You know, that it's published, that it's not changed too frequently, that it's not retroactive. These are, these are procedural requirements. And Lon Fuller used to argue that if 
a legal system met those procedural requirements, that it lived up to those procedural requirements of making law, that there was a high probability that the underlying substance of the law would also be moral. So, for example, if you require, as we do in the United States and as any good country does, if you require that judges actually publish written legal opinions to back up their rulings on cases. You know, you don't just have a judge adjudicate and say guilty versus not guilty, or I find for the plaintiff and that's it. You have judges write opinions uh, explaining their reasoning. And if you do this, it is more likely that the judge is going to issue both findings and opinions, rulings and opinions that are morally just. Because, I mean, if you have to explain yourself, you're more likely going to do things that you feel like you can explain just that prompting of, of you know, making you explain is, is going to make you um, do something substantively better. That was Lon Fuller's idea. Nonetheless, he recognized, and I think anybody rational recognizes that it is possible to adhere to many of the requirements of rule of law and not necessarily have an underlying system substantively that is moral. And we have a lot of that here in the United States now. Our government is doing a whole bunch of things that it should not be doing. You know, we've got Obamacare. Now I've been, you know, calling it Trump care because they haven't repealed it. Um, you know, we have government doing a war on drugs. We have government uh, redistributing wealth. You know, there's all sorts of things. And you might say that in each of these invalid things that the government is doing, the government is doing much more than its proper job of protecting our rights. In fact, it's violating our rights in order to you know, redistribute wealth, force us to do charitable things, uh, you know, micromanaging and over-regulating business. It's doing all sorts of things it should not be doing. Uh, nonetheless, you could say it's, it's adhering to all of this. Have you ever seen... For example, the published set of regulations that the government puts out all the time. Um, if you've seen that, then you know that it's written in great detail as clearly as these legislators or bureaucrats can formulate. And maybe it's never, you know, hardly ever retroactive or anything else. Occasionally when there is something retroactive, like recently there was a uh, something that the House passed that was going to be retroactive on some of the social media outlets. And I don't know what the fate of this has been, by the way. I, we should go back and look at it. But it was going to retroactively hold some social media outlets liable for things that were done by users of, of their site, which is just a huge incursion on freedom of expression and the way freedom of expression is exercised in our country right now. And it was retroactive. And that was a huge thing, you know, a huge element of the criticism by Justin Amash of this particular piece of legislation, which unfortunately passed the House by a large margin. Uh, we criticize this. Now, um, most of the time, though, it's not. So you could say, United States, we largely adhere to the rule of law. Many countries around the world do, even though substantively these governments do a lot of unjust things. So you can see that these things can exist side by side, following the form of rule of law, while in the substance, 
not having moral law. And in fact, Tara talks in this chapter, and let me see if I can find that part, where she is saying that um, the rule of law can be a value even to people who are rights hostile, as she calls them. Yeah, so this is on pages 79 to 80 of our book. She says, if a nation's rulers were scornful of individual rights, why should they seek to maintain rule of law, at least as its contents are normally conceived? What would be gained by adhering to the template of legal etiquette, as she calls it, as Tara's calling it? She says, while a few answers suggest themselves, it's easy to see that none supplies the kind of reason needed to underwrite a firm obligation to rule of law. One is the ruler simply likes order and predictability. Um, Another is the appearance of justice, right? You would like to have it appear to be just because you followed a certain form, even though it's not. And, you know, she says you could probably imagine other others as well. But she says, a, the formal requirements of the rule of law do not constitute a proper ideal independently of what they serve. When they are, in fact, ideal, they, oh, excuse me, my voice is cracking here. This is a fun day, right? In terms of, uh, in terms of the form of the show, I'm hoping the substance of the show will carry it. So, um she says when uh, when the rule of law when the all the formal requirements of the rule of law are in fact ideal they are so only because of the value of the ends which they advance if they were truly value neutral or if the end that they serve were not a worthy one they would forfeit their claim on us okay i could say that again right um when these formal requirements of the rule of law are value neutral or if the end that they served were not a worthy one, they would forfeit their claim on us. She's saying the rule of law is not an ideal that you should value or respect if it is truly something that is value neutral that you can think of apart from the underlying moral justification for the law or, you know, forget the neutrality, what is true of so many laws today is that the ends that they serve are not a worthy one. And so the rule of law is not something in and of itself that deserves our respect. I have mentioned on my show before an essay talking about um, whether or not the fact that something is law makes it worthy of moral consideration just because it's the law. And I've asked the question in different ways. So I've said, for example, if I tell you I broke a law today, right? I broke a law today. Um, If I tell you that I broke a law, does that make you think that I'm a bad person? And for most people, I assume who are listening to my show, you know that there are some unjust laws. And so you might ask me, Hey, Amy, you know, what law did you break? And I've given the example of speeding a couple miles over the speed limit or something. And in fact, sometimes speeding a couple miles over the speed limit is the moral thing to do depending on your context, right? And I've referred before that there's an essay that I used to teach in my philosophy of law class where a philosopher goes through various arguments trying to say that simply because something is the law, therefore it is worthy of 
moral consideration, moral respect that you should feel apart, you know, unless there's some other overriding argument, you should feel some obligation to obey the law. You should recognize some moral obligation to obey the law. The way he asked the question in the title of the piece is called, this is the title of it. He says, is there a prima facie obligation to obey the law? And what he means by that is on its face, simply because something is the law, is there a moral obligation to obey it or respect it apart from anything else, apart from its content? Can you say at least there's something that you would have to override by showing that the law is unjust? So you know nothing more about it. You know, there's a law on the books and I broke it. You, you say, Amy, you're a bad person. And he goes through various types of arguments that have been given for that proposition that there is this moral obligation and he finds no there isn't any so if you are really interested in that go pick up you know a big philosophy of law book or see if you can find that essay i don't know if it's out there free on the internet or not the author is m b e smith m as in man b as in boy e smith MBE Smith, is there a prima facie obligation to obey the law? It's a longer essay. It's very thorough. It goes through utilitarian and all different sorts of arguments for there being this type of obligation and just wipes the floor with all of them. Um, so, you know, basically agreeing with Tara that the rule of law itself is not of value unless you also have an underlying substance to that law that is proper. That's really the main point there. So let me go over to my blog at don'tletitgo.com and let's go into the substance of some of these stories. Uh, Do you guys feel like you've got a good understanding? Okay, what is the rule of law? The rule of law is this set of formal requirements that anything that would properly be called law, that that it should meet procedural requirements. It should be written. It should be published. It should be given in advance so that people have time to comply. It should ask for things. One of the requirements that's in the essay of Lon Fuller that it wasn't listed in Tara's book is it should require only things that are possible for you to actually do. So if it says, you know, when the king summons you, you must be there within 10 seconds. Otherwise you forfeit something, you know, your cow or whatever. Um, you, it's not possible to physically get yourself to the king, right, in, in 10 seconds. And so it should require things that are, you know, possible. It shouldn't uh, be contradictory. You know, the law should be self-consistent. All of those requirements, not retroactive, uh, not changing too frequently or arbitrarily, you know, relatively stable. Those are all procedural requirements. And Tara in her book, as I said, argues extensively that, yes, this is a value, but it is not a value apart from the underlying purpose or substance of a particular law. And like I said, now I've given you, if you're really interested in digging in, there's a formal philosophical paper that makes the same point with respect to just legality in general, but you can apply the same arguments to the rule of law. Oh, thanks to just Jean over in the chat room at Blog Talk Radio. She has given us a link to the Smith piece. It says edited, so I don't know if that means it's going to be a little bit different version than the one I've read, but I assume it's just as good. And I've always taught it as part of my class. 
because that is one of the things that in philosophy of law, the, you know, it's, it's the positivists, the legal positivists who are trying to argue that you can have a value neutral conception of law and that this, you know, the idea that something is legal, the mere idea that something is a law that it's written on the books should make everybody step in line immediately and you should feel that you've got this obligation to obey and be terrified if you don't and feel really bad about yourself if you don't. And they're always trying to find some sort of a justification for that that doesn't require reference to the moral substance of the law, the underlying moral substance of the law. And MBE Smith argues you just can't do it. There is no not even a prima facie obligation, not even a very weak initial obligation to obey the law simply because it's the law. There has to be substance. So having made my point and probably beaten it to death a little bit here, let's go to the story, right? So let's talk about immigration. And, you know, am I saying don't enforce immigration laws at all? Let's just open the borders completely and not check anybody or anything else. No, I'm not saying that. But if you look at the two cases that I'm talking about, like, let's look at the two cases that I'm talking about first. Actually, let me see if I can find uh, an article that talks about mother, daughter, Congo separated. Ice. Let's see if I did that well. Okay, ICE has now released the mother that it's detained for months far away from seven-year-old. Actually, so it might not be seven months. The seven that I was remembering before might be because the daughter was seven years old. Yes, this is a Washington Post article from March 7th that they've released the mother, Congolese mother detained by immigration officials thousands of miles apart from her seven-year-old daughter, released Tuesday. She was an asylum seeker, fled violence in the Congo, spent the past four months. So she was four months in a detention center while her daughter remained alone in Chicago. So she was in San Diego. Her daughter was in Chicago. ACLU filed a lawsuit on behalf of the mother and daughter, saying there was never any legitimate reason to separate them. Lawsuit accused the Trump administration of violating the pair's constitutional rights, demanded that they be reunited immediately. Now they've released the mother from custody, but the girl is in custody and they're still awaiting reunification. Now they say the release, the release came on orders quote from up top in the U S department of Homeland security spokesman for ice. Didn't immediately respond. Uh, Cases hit a nerve says the ACLU DHS was feeling some pressure. Yes, of course. Right. ACLU does a a lot of good work in a lot of ways. But part of the story that I've read before, and it was in a different write-up on this, the Trump administration had announced its intention to do exactly this in order to deter illegal immigration. And from what I understand, once they were starting to get pressure about this particular case, they said that the reason that they were doing it, it wasn't, oh, it wasn't that they were doing this, um, yeah, DHS spokesman Tyler Houlton said immigration officials retain the authority to separate women and children in certain certain circumstances, quote, particularly to protect a child from potential smuggling and trafficking activities. 
end quote. That's the pretext that they give for doing this. And um, this is, to me, it sounds a whole lot, right? I mean, here's my analogy that I'm, I'm thinking of. The analogy is with the Broadcom-Qualcomm merger that they're stopping. Now, it's a so-called hostile takeover. And, and Jerome didn't talk about that so much yesterday when he was covering the case, but he knows it well, that a hostile takeover isn't actually hostile. It's called that in the you know, kind of finance world or whatever. But Broadcom, Qualcomm, Broadcom was going to acquire Qualcomm and the Trump administration stopped it supposedly for national security concerns. So here they are. As I understand it, the Trump administration had some months ago announced that it was going to do exactly this sort of horrific, disgusting, horrible thing, separate, you know, parents from their children that they were going to do this in order to deter illegal immigration, that that was the purpose of doing it. And instead, when, it, when they do do it, instead of saying, oh, yeah, we're doing it because we have this policy, we're trying to deter illegal immigration, instead what they say is, oh, it's to protect from smuggling and trafficking. So suppose you do think that. Suppose you think that in a particular case of a woman and a child coming in, that there's this potential that it might be smuggling or, or trafficking. What do you do? You do blood tests. You try to acquire objective knowledge about whether this is indeed the parent of the child. You don't separate them and be cruel to them because you have, you know, basically decided arbitrarily, right? Um, so you, you test them as quickly as possible and maybe you could still keep them together and observe them, right? Keep them together. If you, if you have reasonable cause to believe that there's some smuggling and child trafficking activities going on, okay, detain, observe, test, do what you need to acquire objective evidence, and then let them be when you don't have any. Um, for me, of course, I think the underlying substantive immigration policy is wrong. And, you know, so, so we could talk about that as well. You say, okay, well, shouldn't we enforce the law because it's on the books? And, well, this is not a great policy, but isn't it true that any sort of policy that you are going to use to try to enforce existing immigration law is going to cause pain and hardship for the people who are trying to get in the United States? So this is just a really extreme example. Amy, aren't you just appealing to emotion here? You know, if you're really for the rule of law, wouldn't you say that the proper way to handle the situation is to volley for a change, you know, lobby for a change in the underlying law and go ahead and enforce in the meantime, maybe they could do something a little bit better in the way that they handled this case. Okay. Let's, you know, agree that they could do that. But other than that, you know, what, what's the big deal? Aren't you in favor of rule of law, Amy? Similarly with my sympathy in the other immigration-related case that I talked to you about. Again, over at the blog, don'tletitgo.com, the one about the ICE spokesman quitting his job because he disputed what the agency had been telling everybody, that 800 people were able to elude arrest. And it was not just 800 people, but that you're supposed to believe a significant portion of them were violent criminals that were able to elude arrest and potential deportation because of the warning from the Oakland mayor, the ICE spokesman quit because he was being told that he had to toe the party line and, and you know, keep 
propagating that fraud. Um, you know, there's no way they could have arrested 800 people. They, you know, they didn't have the resources to do any of that anyway. So, the, the, you know, the whole thing was not really true from top to bottom. And, you know, how many of them were actually violent? Um, that's the other question. You know, for me, if you say that when our immigration authorities are going to do a crackdown in our country right now, that they're going to round up only violent criminals, right? Because I, I don't believe that if somebody comes in this country, they have a right to come in here if they are violent criminals. If you do allow them a right to come in here and work in the United States within some sort of probationary period, you see that they have become violent criminals or some sort of a, a actual criminal violation. Yeah, kick them out. Of course, I'm in favor of, of doing that. I think that that would be part of a just immigration policy to not allow in or to kick out criminals who are trying to seek residency and potentially citizenship eventually in the United States. Um, that would be fine. But that's not all that the Trump administration was going to do with this crackdown. And so, therefore, I'm sympathetic with the Oakland mayor giving everybody a heads up that this crackdown was coming. And I'm sympathetic with the ICE spokesman quitting because he's not going to toe the party line and, and you know, just blindly mouth the agency's claim that 800 people, a bunch of them violent criminals, had eluded arrest because of this warning. Um, you know, th so these are the two, and I have sympathy. So then the question is, how should these situations be handled then, right? I think that the underlying immigration law is unjust. Maybe some of the people who have been kind of critical of, of my sort of position, maybe they also agree. You know, it just depends. A lot of people have different views on immigration. My view on immigration happens to be that we should have a very open immigration policy that we should screen at the borders for people coming into the United States, but it should be simply for criminal records, any sort of association with terrorists or other enemies of the United States, contagious diseases, anybody who poses a physical risk to Americans, right? It is our, our government's job to keep out people who are physical risks, but no screening for ideology or things like that. If you're going to keep people out from entire areas, regions, then you need to make the case that there's a good probability that it's impossible to effectively screen people and to make sure that members of ISIS aren't coming in with that population and stuff. But I'm open to that kind of stuff too, right? So that's my immigration policy in a nutshell. Check at the borders but you're going to keep people out only uh, with respect to reasons that have to do with individual rights, protecting the rights of Americans, protecting Americans from force or physical harm. That's what our government should be doing at the border. Uh, it shouldn't be keeping out a woman and child from the Congo who are fleeing violence. You know, there, there should be no problem with them coming in. If there's child trafficking, of course, that's a different story. Uh, but, you know, obviously they, they really mishandled this. And, and if the whole reason of separating is to deter so-called illegal immigration, then I'm not sympathetic because I disagree with the current immigration law. So how do you handle it? How do you handle this? I'm saying, okay, on the one hand, I do value the rule of law. I think that the objectivity that you get from the rule of law, the fact that you get a lot of notice about what laws are going to apply to you when you're going to be subject to any sort of punishment by our government. All of those things, we have to adhere to the law. We have to have consistency with the law. 
So what do you do in a case like this, right? This is immigration law. It's on the books right now. It's sure it's unjust, but my critics will say, hey, you have to enforce it. You have to enforce it up until the point that you can actually change it in some way. And what I would say is that the Trump administration, just like all presidential administrations before it, has some discretion about the extent to which and the way in which it's going to enforce immigration law in particular. So one thing we used to hear with, you know, with the Obama administration is that the Obama administration did not um, enforce immigration law a lot of times, and it had the discretion not to enforce the immigration law. Um, so why not keep doing that now, right? Why not just exercise discretion? You can choose to, in effect, implement a just immigration policy just by exercising discretion with respect to the um, enforcement of the existing immigration law. That's what I think the Trump administration should do. And of course, what the Trump administration has done is it's chosen to exercise its discretion in what I would say is the opposite direction. So I'm, I'm arguing, you know, the executive branch, if you have discretion as to whether to enforce immigration law, and apparently you do, that's what I'm hearing from, you know, what we heard from the Trump administration before. And, you know, they didn't stop the Trump administration from doing a lot of the things that it was doing with respect to immigration. If they have discretion, then go ahead and exercise that discretion so as to de facto, at least, sort of enforce a just immigration policy. Allow more people in. Allow, you know, as many visas as you can of the different types for people to come in, skilled workers and everything else. Uh, you know, whatever you think is the substantively just immigration policy, there is some discretion to move in that direction. But as I say, what the Trump administration is, seems to be doing is they are going in exactly the opposite direction, and they are choosing to exercise their discretion and so-called strictly enforce the rules that are on the books and, in fact, maybe do things that aren't even allowed based on the spirit of what's in the books. So, for example, um, I doubt that the law that is on the books say says, oh, it's great if you decide to go ahead and separate a mother and daughter who are trying to get in the United States if you're doing it in order to serve as a deterrent. That sounds, I mean, like some of the cruelest and unusual punishment that you could ever imagine, you know, and we are a country rejects the whole idea of, of cruel and unusual punishment. And you say, okay, well, constitutional rights don't apply to people who are trying to, rights apply to human beings. And our country was founded on individual rights. And if you want to sit there and niggle on, you know, constitutional rights of immigrants versus us and who you're going to treat properly, they announced this policy. They're going to separate parents and kids. Then they went ahead and did it. And then what they tried to do is, as an excuse, say, oh, we were concerned about trafficking. If you're really concerned about trafficking, then you could figure out whether or not there's any evidence of that in a particular case very, very quickly. There's no reason a separation has to go on for months or anything else. So, um, so yeah, so exercise discretion. That's what I'm calling for. And 
like I said, what the Trump administration has done is exactly the opposite. They have chosen to exercise their discretion in a way that would exclude or kick out as many so-called illegal aliens as possible. And while I'm sympathetic to deporting aliens who have come here illegally, uh, and particularly if they've come here illegally and then they've gone on to break some sort of a law uh, and they're violent criminals, then yes, go ahead, round them up and ship them out. That would be fine with me. But that's not what Trump administration is doing because the Trump administration is not just focusing its efforts on solely violent criminals, then the, you know, the immigrants have, I think the justified sympathy of people like the mayor of Oakland who says, Hey, if, you know, I'm becoming aware of the feds coming in to have an immigration crackdown, I'm going to go ahead and warn people. I'm going to warn people. I, my job is to protect my, you know, the people within my city or, or around my city. And that's what she did. So, um, or is it he? It, it could be he. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not up on who the Oakland mayor is this this time around. Uh, you guys can tell me if you want. But yeah, I, I'm very sympathetic with the Oakland mayor. And I don't think that that contradicts the rule of law and, you, you know, the value of the rule of law. I'm not rejecting the rule of law when I tell you that I am not at all sympathetic, I'm very much opposed to the way that the Trump administration has chose to exercise the discretion that is it has with respect to enforcement of the immigration law. The whole immigration law in the books right now is unjust and it needs to be reformed. And so why not, within the letter of it, do whatever you can to achieve a just outcome with respect to immigration while you're at the same time pushing for the reforms that need to be made. That's what should be done. And that is not what's being done. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not for quote enforcing the law as written. Um, And I'm certainly not for going beyond that. And even more so, I mean, you know, when the agency and again, which agency is it that's out there? It's the ICE, right? ICE, uh, wonderful acronym. Um, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, ICE. Yeah, resigned after the recent Northern California sweep. He said he couldn't do his job after Trump administration officials made false public statements about a key aspect of the operation. You know how Trump also has had this revolving door for his own Folks, men, women, I, how many people have moved already through? I know that Obama churned them through a little bit too, but I've seen a lot of churning there. People have been making all sorts of jokes about the Trump administration churning people around, but a, a public official should not be making false statements about this. James Schwab is the one who resigned, told the Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle, he was frustrated by repeated statements by officials, including U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, that roughly 800 undocumented immigrants escaped arrest because of the Oakland Mayor Libby Schaaf's February 4th warning to the public about the operation. Schwab wanted the agency to correct the number. He, uh, he thought it was going to be, it was far lower. He understood it to be far lower, and he didn't want to deflect media questions about it. Quote, 
from Schwab. I quit because I didn't want to perpetuate misleading facts, said Schwab. So certainly, of course, they are not adhering to the rule of law in one part of this operation, which is in putting out the public face of the operation. And, you know, you could say, oh, well, they want to make sure that mayors, they become aware of an impending crackdown around the country, that they are discouraged from warning, you know, the the people who might be subject to arrest and making it harder to arrest them. But, you know, again, I would be in favor of that sort of policy of, of, you know, discouraging these mayors from doing that. I would be in favor of it if these crackdowns were only about violent criminals. Um, Now, again, this is Schwab, a quote from him. He says, I didn't feel like fabricating the truth. Uh, He says, I didn't feel that, that fabricating the truth to defend ourselves against the actions was the way to go about it. He says, we were never going to pick up that many people. To say that 100% are dangerous criminals on the street or that those people weren't picked up because of the misguided actions of the mayor is just wrong. And that's the thing. If you're going to take this extraordinary measure of going out and picking up people on the street and arresting them, they should be, in my view, violent criminals. Otherwise, what you're doing is you are choosing to exercise your discretion in favor of an unjust immigration policy. And that, you know, you could say, oh, well, we're just enforcing the law. We're just following the law. But no, you're not. You are not enforcing the law. The law should be properly about individual rights. And to the extent that the law departs from individual rights, if you say, well, the law is law, I'm just going to go ahead and just enforce it. You know, we don't really like it. No. Now, mind you, I've spoken with people in the past who have worked as uh, prosecutors, particularly at the state level. And they had been asked, of course, to prosecute as some of the crimes, drug laws. And they don't necessarily agree with it, but they only have so much discretion. And if they didn't prosecute any drug cases, then they'd be out of a job. And so then the question is, do they choose to stay in their job and then do as much good as they can in their job while they oppose the drug laws? Or do they choose, you know, do they say, oh, gosh, I can't prosecute drug crimes. And if I have to do that as a certain part of my work, do I quit entirely? Um, Those are tough choices. And I can be sympathetic with people making uh, either sort of choice. And like I said, to a certain extent, if there's an immigration law on the books, do you have to enforce it? Yeah, okay, you do. But I don't see that they have to go to this extent. They certainly don't have to lie about what they're doing. They don't have to lie about the effect of what they're doing. They don't have to lie about the effect of what the mayor's disclosure was on the operation and whether there's a whole bunch of dangerous criminals out on the street because of Mayor Schaaf's warning to the public. That That's just bogus. Um, Now, I'm over in the Blog Talk Radio chat room, and I haven't seen any action there for a while. I guess I'm being clear enough on this issue so far. Let me go over to the other sort of case that I have in mind with respect to rule of law. And as I said, this was the issue of Edward Snowden. I'm going to make this integration now. And, you know, it's, it's an analogy that occurred to me. It's an analogy that if 
you disagree with me on what I'm saying about immigration law, the, this analogy, if, if you agree with what I say in the next case, maybe it will give you a little bit of pause because I, you know, people have known me for years as this because Edward Snowden's revelations were in 2013. Can you believe it's almost five years since Edward Snowden's revelations and our privacy policy in the United States has not gotten any better. Unfortunately, we're going to wait and see what the Supreme Court does in Carpenter. But yeah, it's been nearly five years. And I've always been a defender of Edward Snowden. I thought of him as a hero. I gave an entire long show explaining in detail my defense of Edward Snowden, even though, and I feel I am respecting the rule of law, um, Edward Snowden you know, a whistleblower, right? So he actually technically violated the law in order to bring to all of our knowledge the systematic rights violations of Americans by our NSA and and, uh, other parts of our government, FISA courts and all this stuff. Uh, In particular, Edward Snowden made it clear that the government is engaging in searches without probable cause or particularized suspicion on a routine basis and, in fact, is collecting data about Americans without any probable cause, without any particularized suspicion, and not just some Americans but millions of Americans on a routine basis, for t- potentially all Americans, given the way that the laws can be applied. So no probable cause, no particularized suspicion, no warrant requirement for any of this. A lot of people are horrified. And in this show that I have, I called it Heroes and Dogmatists. It was a little bit over a year ago. And I also talked about Martin Luther King Jr. in that context. And the focus of the show was that you could see someone as a hero, even if you thought that person was mixed. And I certainly do think Edward Snowden is mixed. He got himself caught up with that um, Glenn Greenwald, you know, and some of these liberal lefty people and Uh, He doesn't take the Islamic threat as as seriously as I think he should. There's a a lot of things wrong with him, right? Uh, But I think in the particular case of notifying us of doing what was need to happen to, to bring to the light of the public the stuff about the bulk surveillance, I think that he was very good. Let me take a sip of this. I keep talking and talking with a bottle of water for those of you who can't see me right now. I keep talking with a bottle of water in front of me. I'm going to take a sip. I'm going to take a sip, and I don't take a break. So, um, so yeah, so with Snowden, right, I defend him. I defend what he did. And he came up in the news, and this is why I thought of the analogy. He came up in the news because of Trump firing Rex Tillerson, and he's trying to put in place. I guess that there has to be some sort of a hearing and a confirmation. So I don't understand actually the logistics of this because as far as I know, Tillerson is out. He was out with no notice. It wasn't even done properly. He was fired on Twitter and then he couldn't even talk to Trump for three hours. And it's just like this sudden thing, you know, he's out. And if you, I actually posted the transcript of the little announcement that Trump made about this. Because he was actually asked, he said, uh, the the journalist asked him, did you fire Tillerson because Tillerson called you a moron? And then Trump pretended he didn't hear it. He said, say it again. And then the journalist said it again. And then Trump again pretended he didn't hear it. He would not answer that question. Now, would Trump really fire somebody because the guy called him a moron? No, there's other stuff going on. And in fact, 
as Jerome was talking about in his news briefing yesterday, and I would think this as well, I was reading some speculation about this out on Twitter. Um, it could be because Tillerson was not towing the party line with respect to Russia, that Trump is a lot more sympathetic to Russia and other disgusting dictators around the world more broadly than Tillerson was. And Trump wants to be able to have the discretion to make nice with disgusting, brutal dictators, right? He'd like to be able to do that. So um, so Tillerson's out, and they're going to bring Pompeo in. And as I said, the one thing that I remembered is, you know, when they were going to have Pompeo as the head of the CIA, is that Pompeo believed that Snowden should be extradited, brought back here, brought up for treason, and executed. So let's put it all together now, right? If you've got Tillerson is out because he's not friendly enough with Russia. Suppose that's true. Pompeo presumably is ready to be friendly with Russia. And in fact, it seems now that he would have a very personal motivation because he's got such animus for Snowden and he wants to bring Snowden back and execute him and stuff. Um, That that could happen, right? This could actually happen. Of course, you know, when Snowden, excuse me, when Pompeo became the head of CIA, I was distressed about this. And so now I'm even more distressed because as Secretary of State, Pompeo would be one step closer to being in a position to actually achieve this goal versus just exert influence as as the head of CIA. Um, This would be horrible, right? Or, you know, we might not even see Snowden brought back here, but now that Russia's doing its thing and just killing people with nerve agents wherever they feel like they can, no due process, whatever. Um, you know, that might be what happens to, to Snowden, this guy who, you know, again, I argue, you got to find that show, Heroes and Dogmatists. I'll stick it in the program notes at the blog afterwards. But I argue extensively as to why Snowden really was backed against a wall, that the only way that the nature and the extent of these unconstitutional, horribly unjust programs, these surveillance programs, the only way that these could come to light fully and come to light in a way that would provide standing in a court of law to try to challenge them in a case like Carpenter, the case, you know, the Carpenter case we're waiting for the ruling on, made possible because of the Snowden revelations and, and all the information that came out because of that. Subsequently, um, this guy is a hero. And, and the idea that, you know, you're going to go after him and, um, you know, bring him in, extradite him and, and execute him or just see if the Russians can do it for you because now you're friendly with the Russians because you've got Pompeo in. This is disgusting. Um, so, yeah. So I'm thinking about this. So then you say, you could say, Amy, aren't you for the rule of law? And, uh, you know, again, I'll have to refer you to that show, Heroes and Dogmatists. But what I talk about in there is the fact that Snowden initially was, then this is my understanding, this is what he's talked about, and I, I tend to believe him, even though he's, a, like I said, he's a mixed person. I acknowledge this. I do not agree with Snowden on everything. I'm ready to criticize him on many things. But I believe that he did try to go up through the proper channels, that he was rebuffed when he did try to go through the proper channels, that he also observed that if he had followed, um, you know, or sought the protection of the existing whistleblower laws on the books, 
that he would not have gotten a fair trial in the United States. So he saw that it was imperative that this stuff be made public, that the only way to do it was to get information in the hands of journalists. I also believe that he was very careful to the extent that he could to have that information released to and by the journalists in a way that would not harm the legitimate interests of Americans. Uh, you know, for example, expose spies overseas or expose any sort of location of our troops in enemy territories or any of those things, right? You know, he tried to do everything he could to just make the public at large aware of the injustice being committed systematically by our government, pushing towards 1984 is, is what our government's been doing. He, he wants to make the public aware of it so that we can do something about it, that outrage would happen and therefore we'd push for either legislation or, as I've argued, the only real way to do it is litigation. Litigation, they tried to challenge these programs through litigation in the past. Some people were aware of the programs, but there hadn't been any evidence that could be introduced in a court of law about these programs. The only way you could achieve that evidence is by violating the policies of the NSA uh, and you know the different agencies. So Snowden had to violate them. He was made aware that if he had gone through the proper channels, that at best he would be treated as a whistleblower in the current law. And the whistleblower current law, he would just get a superficial kind of pro forma trial. He wouldn't be able to make his case to the public and get the public made aware of, of what's going on. So, um, so this is the only thing that could happen. And now you say, okay, well, Amy, nonetheless, isn't he breaking the law? This, isn't this Snowden case somehow different, right? So if anything, you know, let's go back to how good these two analogies are. I've got these two cases where the rule of law would seem to go against my sympathies or position in the particular case. One was the immigration case. One is this case. If anything, we should be less sympathetic to Snowden, right? Because Snowden is not in a position that he had discretion. The law told him, you do not disclose this information about NSA programs that you have been given access to. You've been given this high-level security clearance. It comes with certain responsibilities. You do not have discretion to release this information. If you do, you are a lawbreaker. You are a bad person. Um, there's no discretion. So what I would say is, shouldn't you be even less sympathetic to Snowden if you believe in the rule of law than about immigration? right? Those immigration authorities. And what I'm going to say in this case is that this is a very, very highly exceptional case. Um, you know, so with respect to immigration, suppose the immigration authorities have been given no discretion at all, right? Suppose it was different than the current law. Apparently the current law is that the administration the presidential administration has some discretion as to how many resources to allocate to immigration law enforcement. Now, why do you think they have that? It's because they realize that when people want to come in the United States, that they are not posing a threat to us, that they just want to come here and work and exist and live like human beings, right? Why do, why do they have the discretion? Um, on the other hand, it's good for someone like Snowden to not have discretion in the situation where he is, right? So I think that the balance is, is correct there. But, you know, giving discretion in immigration law is a recognition 
that the immigration law that's on the books doesn't have anything to do with rights violations, or at least it's not strictly related to rights violation. It's a concession, right? Um, nonetheless, right, I'm, I'm very sympathetic, and in fact, I'm very upset about the prospect of Snowden being, uh, you know, being executed or otherwise treated horribly because of what he's done. Why is that? I think this is one of those situations where, you know, again, as I argued in that one show extensively, that he had to do what he was going to do, you know, what he and what he did. He had to do what he did in order to expose systematic perpetuated rights violations by our government. There's one other aspect that I talked about in that show and I haven't mentioned here and I should just mention it. Um, All three branches of government had signed off on this program as well. So he's up against the whole United States in judging that this program is unconstitutional and violates the rights of Americans. You know, he, he has his own judgment. When I, had the privilege, or I guess, I guess yeah, I would still call it a privilege. I just disagree with him so much on this issue. I got to um, speak with the former UN ambassador, um, uh, UN ambassador, and it's John. And I'm I'm blanking on his name right now because I'm so, um, yeah. Um, John Bolton. I'm sorry. Why did I forget his last name? It's because I'm frazzled after my my tech at the beginning of this show. So I got to speak to John Bolton, and John Bolton was saying about Snowden at the time. This is right fresh after you know Snowden had just made his revelations week weeks before, and Bolton was out there calling for the execution of of Snowden, which makes me quite upset because uh, I did like a lot of things about Bolton. Um, anyway, so Bolton was talking to me when I had the pleasure of interviewing him pleasure um he said who is snowden to do this you know who does he think he is because all three branches of government had signed off on this i think he said who died and made him king something like that and it was as if somebody needed to give snowden permission to do what he snowden thought was right in order to achieve justice in the situation and you know you know, who, who does he think he is? You know, why does he think he can do this? And I said, he just went on his own judgment. And I was arguing that it was appropriate for Snowden to exercise his own judgment as to, now I didn't have a full extensive argument, but you know, Snowden knew what he was up against. He knew all three branches of government and signed off on this, that within the agency that he was working itself to the extent that he had gone uh, up the chain of command and talked about his concerns with the surveillance programs that the NSA was using, um, those concerns were ignored, that he was not getting any traction at all, and that the only way to expose it was by doing what he did. So nonetheless, in this situation, even though I, yes, I respect the rule of law, um, I recognize that the rule of law is a value only if the underlying substance of the law is just. And this particular rights violation by our government, where we have um, this bulk surveillance program that is uncheckable by anything, it seems completely uncheckable, Not you can't challenge it at all. Uh, legislature is deaf to it, president, of course, all the presidents. And you know, Snowden was talking about the fact he was, he was counting on Obama 
to be the one, right? These programs had gone in this direction under Bush. He had counted on Obama to be the one to turn in a better direction. But Obama liked his toys just as much as any other would-be dictator. And he kept them. He was keeping the toys, too. And Snowden was dismayed about it. And that's why he went ahead and, and, you know, did it. He was hoping that Obama was going to save him from the necessity of having to expose these programs. And it just didn't happen. So Snowden didn't see himself as having any alternative to making the public aware of and then enabling a challenge to these horribly unjust systematic rights violations by our government. And so I agree in that sort of situation where there's no other alternative, then yes, you decide that the rule of law in this particular situation is not a value. Now, with Snowden, um, he had said before that he would have been willing to go on trial here in the United States if the existing procedure for, uh, you know, sort of a whistleblower in his situation would have allowed him to have an open trial in which he made his complete case as to what was going on and the reasons why he did it, but that under the existing law, that opportunity was not afforded him. So he had to try to, you know, figure out someplace else he could be. As I understand it, he was not really excited about being in Russia, but he wound up there. And again, I think he trusted some of the wrong people. He's allied himself, unfortunately. He's too sympathetic with some of the wrong people as well. So they put him in Russia. I'm hoping that somehow he can find someplace that's better and more suited to somebody who is an advocate for liberty. In the chat room over at Blog Talk Radio, Jay says, demanding enforcement of law on someone who showed the corruption of the law itself is a clear demonstration of absolute state totalitarianism. <sighs> yes. Um, were any of Snowden's illegalities punishable by the, the death penalty? Well, what Pompeo and I presumably still Ambassador John Bolton want is for him to be tried on treason. And treason, of course, punishable by the death penalty. So that would be horrific. And, you know, the the initial vivid image of this happening in my mind occurred when Pompeo was first appointed as head of CIA. And I guess I'm a little bit a nerd to the whole thing now because I haven't had such a, a vision in my mind. It was just... You know, Ayn Rand talks about understanding things in a truck-like way. Every so often, something just becomes so apparently clear to you that it's just hitting you in, in the face. I have an experience like that every so often with different things in life. And I remember at the time with Pompeo, and maybe also kind of contemporaneous with that, I was also recently rereading 1984 or something, I was just thinking of what a 1984 moment it would be if we executed Edward Snowden for treason in the United States um, and how, you know, what that would say about the United States as a country and, and whether it should have your loyalty and admiration anymore if, as a country, we are capable of, of doing something horrible like that. And, I, you know, I guess I just need to kind of wrap my mind around it more and, and focus on it a little bit more again, because now we've got Pompeo as secretary of state, this could actually happen. And, and Pompeo could 
on behalf of Trump, cozy up to Putin and figure out some sort of an arrangement to bring Snowden back. And we could actually watch this happen under a Trump administration. And if that happened and the people who um, were in favor of Trump were still in favor of Trump, I, I couldn't even speak to them anymore. That's where I'd be, I, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, even putting the thing about, you know, let's go ahead and separate a mother and daughter and keep them apart for months because we want to deter illegal immigration. That's horrific. But, you know, when you, you know, take Edward Snowden, you put him out on parade and show that you're executing him after what he did. I, I just think that would mean that pretty much the death of our country and what it stands for. That's, that's what I've thought about it. And um, the idea that, you know, you're for make America great again, let's execute Snowden. Oh, um, I've got expletives in my mind that I'm not stating right now. Jay in the chat room says it would probably be more like 1984 if they get him to recant or admit his guilt before executing. Yeah, it definitely would. Um, God, that book. That book. I mean, there's just so much of that book that, that's coming alive today. You know, I don't have a whole lot of time left, so let me go over to the few program notes that I have and see what else I need to tell you guys. Oh, so let me tell you. So rule of law, right? Um, when With respect to enforcing the law strictly, uh, when it's applied to citizens, or even non-citizens, like I say, you know, people who want to immigrate to the United States, I would be in favor of exercising whatever discretion that you have to achieve a just outcome. That's really what I'm saying here, that it's the just outcome that makes the rule of law value in the first place. And so that, you know, when, when you say, oh, well, this is the law that's on the books and you can't blame the Trump administration for enforcing it. No, yes, you can. And if there's discretion, you should be exercising it in the direction of justice as much as you possibly can. Uh, When there's no discretion, as in the case of Snowden, there are situations in which the underlying value at stake, the substantive value at stake, is so important that you should say, forget it. I am not going to adhere to the rule of law. I'm going to blatantly, knowingly break the law and, you know, disrespect the idea of the rule of law in favor of substantive justice. That's what I'm saying. Now, that's with respect to individual citizens and the rule of law. What about with respect to officials, government officials and the rule of law? This case just came out this week. And James Clapper has apparently avoided charges completely for his, his clearly erroneous surveillance testimony. This is related to the whole Snowden thing. So not only is Snowden considered a criminal who might be brought here, extradited and brought up on treason charges and maybe executed in a horribly unjust, I just can't even uh, picture it. Sorry, I'm just going to sigh and not talk. So, you know, Clapper gets off scot-free. They never prosecuted him for the statements that he made back in 2013 he was talking about in 2013, let me, let me find the statements. Um, 
Yeah, Clapper's problematic testimony occurred a few minutes before noon on March 12, 2013, when he told Senator Ron Wyden, a Democratic for Oregon, no, sir, and not wittingly, those are the two things he said, no, sir, and not wittingly, in response to a question about whether the NSA was collecting, quote, any type of data at all, end quote, on millions of Americans. He lied before Congress. He could have been prosecuted for this, but now, after March 12th of this year, the statute of limitations, which is five years, expired. This guy gets off scot-free. And what I'm going to say is, if you believe in the rule of law, it is this that you should be the most concerned about. Yeah, there's prosecutorial discretion and the blah, blah, blah. But when you have a public official who is lying about the performance of what is you know, his duties, lying about what government programs do, government programs that should be transparent. This guy should have been prosecuted, and the fact that he has not been prosecuted, that he gets off free, while Snowden remains a fugitive who is going to maybe be, you know, brought here, like I said, and and killed. uh, This is ridiculous. And if you uphold the rule of law as an ideal, This is the place with respect to government officials that you should not budge an inch if you have a real case of a rule violation. Why? Because any system of law, any system of checks and balances is necessarily imperfect. There are always ways within, you know, people within that system, the administrators within that system, the officials within that system, that they can go wrong and they can bend the system in an unjust way. And that's exactly what Clapper did here. He needed to be made an example of, and he was not. And it is inexcusable. So um, opposite direction, yeah, rule of law. The, the rule of law definitely needs to be upheld with respect to government officials. If they are violating the rule of law, we need to get them. Um, one last quick story. I've got a few minutes. And actually, I can't really do a whole lot of justice to the story. All I can do is I can give you the summary that my friend gave me. It's from Russia with Blood, a BuzzFeed news story. As you are aware, Russia has been executing people on foreign soil in the UK, supposedly from you know their dissidents, political dissidents of certain kinds and stuff like that. But apparently this has helped to expose something that's been going on in the UK for a while, which is that a number of Russians who have a lot of dirty money, you talk about cronyism in the United States, there's all sorts of cronyism and corruption and outright illegality in Russia. They have an oligarchy of sorts. And a number of the people have gone to the UK and spent their money and bought lavish homes and all sorts of stuff in the UK. Why, of course, well, life's better in the UK. Wouldn't you want to live in the UK versus Russia? I sure would. Um, And so then the question is, why has Russia, I mean, excuse me, why has the UK not taken action against Russia in the past? And the answer apparently is, is that the UK has not wanted to give up the money that the Russians have brought, that the money that the Russians have brought to the UK is a significant enough factor 
that if they lose it because they decide that they're going, you know, and I guess now they are kicking out a number of people from Russia and stuff. They're finally doing it. Why? Because, I mean, they have to. They have no choice. They're publicly exposed if they don't. Uh, but they didn't want to. Apparently, they were reluctant in part because of the money. Now, the Russians, of course, also, they would value living in the UK because of the rule of law to the extent that it still exists in the UK as well. But um, that is that is quite the mess. And now the question is, what is Trump going to do about this? Is Trump going to denounce Russia and side with May and be a strong ally of the UK in this situation? Um, or is it going to go ahead and bury its head in the sand or in fact cozy up with Russia, which is the thing I'm the most scared of? You guys, I'm about done with my show over here at Blog Talk Radio. The time limit is up, so I'm going to have to go ahead and also end my video. I thank you for tuning in today. I thank you for your patience with respect to all the technical difficulties. I'm going to try to edit both the audio files and the video files to get as much of that as possible out of the beginning of the show. I hope you found it of value. And I will, I think, see you guys on Saturday with your own. I, I think he's in town and planning to do a show with me on Saturday. I don't yet know what the topic is. It's uh, If you have any stories that are of interest to you, go ahead and send them to me as well. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Blog Talk audience, thanks you. thank you, as I said, for your patience. And we'll talk next time.